0: Let's turn together to Hebrews chapter 4 this morning. Hebrews chapter number 4, our text will be verses 14 through 16. Hebrews chapter number 4, verses 14 through 16. It has been quite the journey through chapter 4 of the book of Hebrews. And this morning we bring this particular chapter to a close uh, with a great reminder of this principle of the throne of grace Uh, it is a term that we use often it's a term that has taken on uh, much of what is known in our uh, modern day church the church speaks about the throne of grace Uh, the church talks about this throne in which god is seated upon Uh, But I want us to understand that as the writer of Hebrews penned these words on the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, this throne of grace was not something to be taken lightly. Uh, If you'll look with me at verse number 14, we'll read down through uh, the end of the chapter. He writes these words, Seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. For we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. As you look at that expression there in verse 16, we'll just make a couple of comments on this throne of grace before we get into the exposition of the other verses. I want you to think with me that what a an amazing, wonderful, beautiful expression the throne of grace is. Of course, it's a very real place. There is truly a throne that is covered and surrounded in grace. It is a location. It is a place that... We all one day will see. we will, If we're in Christ, we will experience what it is to be around the throne of grace. Uh, think about our understanding today of what grace means to us as believers. And I can't even say this probably accurately. Multiply that millions of times over to actually think about what it will be to actually be around the throne of grace bodily and physically. To actually say, this is the throne of grace which we read about. This is the throne of grace that we heard about. And there it is. But the emphasis is not on the throne itself. It's on who is seated upon that throne. It is the emphasis that the Lord Jesus is seated upon that throne. And He is there. The throne, of course, is a seat or a place of a sovereign ruler. It is a place that is a sovereign ruler who is occupying that throne that's described as a throne of grace. Grace would really be of no merit and no value if there wasn't a sovereign God who was the distributor of that grace. If you take sovereignty away from grace, you have nothing but just another term. But it is this grace of a sovereign that's being represented here. This sovereign throne of grace is a place where mercy and pardon are being dispensed from. It is not just a place where a ruler is seated upon and is inactive, uncaring, unconcerned, but rather is a place where mercy is coming from. It's a place where not only mercy is coming from, but pardon for sin is coming from. It is the very place where the person who is responsible For delivering mercy and pardon is seated. This illustration in Hebrews is given, first of all, as a representation of what a temple service would have looked like. Even in the Old Testament temple, there would have been a throne. There would have been a place where mercy, there would have been a place where the dispensing of forgiveness and the dispensing of pardon was coming from. There would have been a mercy seat. There would have been a place where blood was applied. There would have been a beautiful picture illustrated. And the writer of Hebrews first and foremost has the Old Testament temple service in mind. But you go one step further and think about in that temple service, God is represented as being seated in the most holy place of that temple. He was not just placed somewhere within that service he was the very center of everything that was going on in that temple service and in that temple service there were certain things that had to be done and they had to be done correctly as we read there in malachi one of the accusations that malachi through the lord was making an accusation against was that they had polluted and profaned the altars They had stopped looking into the worthiness of the sacrifices that were being offered upon that. And they polluted it by trying to bring something that was not worthy to be placed there. And yet, as the high priest in the temple service would approach the seat or the throne of where the majesty on high would have been represented by, the only way he could come to that throne was with blood. And he must have that blood to approach, and he must have that blood to make an atonement. That great high priest of those days would have had to make an intercession for himself and then for the people. The priest himself was a sinner. He could not offer the blood of that sacrificial lamb without offering blood for his own sins. So therein we begin to find out that the great high priest that The writer of Hebrews is talking about is different than the high priest in the temple service who still had flaws still had blemishes and was not without spot but as we move from that pardon that's there in Hebrews chapter 9 verses 7 and 8 the bible says but unto the second went the high priest alone once every year not without blood which he offered for himself and for the errors of the people the Holy, Ghost this, the Holy Ghost this signifying that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while as the first tabernacle was yet standing, which was a figure for the time then present in which were offered both gifts and sacrifices that could not make him that did the service perfect as pertaining to the conscience." which stood only in meats and drinks and diverse washings and carnal ordinances imposed on them until the time of Reformation. Now here's the glorious truth. I love when the Bible uses terms like this. But Christ, but Christ being come a high priest of good things to come by a greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by His own blood He entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. If you this morning cannot find and see the beauty of the throne of grace, I would encourage you and by the Word of God command you to repent of your sins And believe on the Lord Jesus Christ to see the beauty of this throne, this place that was pictured by the Old Testament tabernacle service, but it never really showed the beauty of that which and who was to come, which was Christ himself. Who the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 4 describes him as that great high priest. The Old Testament service in the tabernacle was pointing them to the day when a perfect high priest would come and he would not have to make an atonement for his own sin first because he will have made the atonement in his own blood. What a beautiful picture. Not only is the scene in which the writer of Hebrews is describing here a picture of the temple service, but it's also a picture of the very throne of grace in heaven. We see the great high priest, we see God seated upon this sovereign throne. We see the great high priest, Jesus Christ, having already shed his own blood, has already made an atonement, is now represented as approaching God the Father and pleading for the pardon of sinful men based upon his own shed blood and based upon his righteousness. Jesus Christ is approaching that throne of grace, pleading with the Father on behalf of us. And the blood which atoned for our sin is the same blood that is allowing us access to the throne of grace. We really don't understand the Old Testament, what it would have required to sacrifice an animal every single week. And how to sacrifice that one time when the great high priest would come and make that one great atonement for the sins of the people every year another animal would have to be slain. Every year, another atonement would have to be made for the great high high priest and for the people. And then one day, it all changed. And suddenly, the great high priest shed his own blood, died upon a cross, was buried, and on the third day, rose again, was seen by many witnesses, ascended back up into heaven, and went right back to the right hand of the Father in glory where he ever lives to make intercession for his people as a great high priest. Every believer in this room sees the beauty of this picture. Every believer in this room sees the beauty of this throne and realizes and are not concerned about what it looks like as far as its structure, but what the throne of grace is all about. People talk about what's heaven going to look like. I really don't care. they worried about what's my mansion going to look like. I don't care. What I do care about is seeing Jesus Christ face to face. And understanding that the only reason I can see him face to face is because of what he did for me and he shed his own blood for me. And He's not allowing me access because I was a preacher. He's not allowing me access because I was a church member. He's not allowing me access because I went to church every week and I got baptized. I'm granted access by His own shed blood, which made a perfect atonement for my sin, never to be repeated again. He is never coming back to this earth to die on a cross again. When He comes back, every eye shall see Him. Every eye shall see Him. Not some secret snatching away. Every eye is going to see Him. And we are going to see the glory of all that we've hoped for and all that we've prayed for and all that we've sung about, all that we've read about, and all that we've preached about. And I can only, it's only—it's going to be amazing. And that's not a strong enough word to describe it. Think about God willing to show His mercy by a sacrifice of His own Son. This makes the words of Hebrews 4 even more beautiful when he says, Seeing then we have a great high priest that is passed under the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. Let us hold fast what we have. God has shown us this mercy. We are now invited and commanded and told to come to the throne of grace with boldness, looking for that pardon, looking for that forgiveness. We come not depending upon our own merits. We come not depending upon our own righteousness. We come where a sufficient, satisfactory sacrifice has already been offered. That sacrifice was Christ. That sacrifice was made for the guilt of all humanity. Man is conceived in sin. He is in fact born a sinner. It's hard for our minds to grab hold of the reality of the sinfulness of a newborn infant. It's hard for us to grow. It's hard for us to grasp how can they be guilty of sin because in Adam all men fell. Which means every person stands in need of this atoning sacrificial blood. They all need this blood. And you and I, if we stand here today or seated here today and we know what it is to be saved by the blood of Jesus Christ, we are indeed a privileged people. And it ought to drive us to our knees in humility. That He would even think on us. That He would even look our direction. Because He does not ultimately need us. But yet, in His mercy, He saves us. And in our salvation, He Himself is glorified. To find forgiveness for our sin is to be assured that God is merciful. One of the great offenses that I hear is when someone accuses God of not being merciful. There is no greater mercy that you will ever experience than the mercy you'll experience at the throne of grace. People try to put human terms on what mercy looks like and ultimately a lot of times people want mercy on somebody or something that maybe is unworthy of it. And they say, "No, that's real mercy. Well, guess what God did for us? He has given to you something you did not deserve. Mercy. And what's He continue to give you every single day when you continue to sin? Mercy. The throne of grace that saves you is a throne of grace that keeps you because the blood of Christ is sufficient not only for the saving of the soul, but for the sustaining of that salvation. We may therefore, because of what Christ has done, come boldly, Boldly doesn't mean arrogantly. Boldly comes and means to come boldly without, without hesitation. If I'm coming to the throne of grace and I'm coming on the merits of Jesus Christ alone, I can come without hesitation. If I'm coming to the throne of grace on my own works or my own merits, then I have no right to be there. You know, what really makes the idea of works-based salvation a travesty to the God is the reality that something we could produce would be accepted by a holy God who demanded the holy, spotless, perfect blood of Christ. Thinking we could bring something to that level. And yet, the writer in Hebrews reminds us that we, in fact, who are His, can approach the throne of grace through Christ, the great high priest. Really, in these verses 14 through 16, we've said a lot already about what's happening here. But the writer is comparing the priesthood. The priesthood of Christ with the priesthood most familiar, which would have been the priesthood of Aaron. And that priesthood, although it had many pictures of what it would be, it still failed to completely show and declare the excellency of Christ priesthood it's not by accident that the writer in Hebrews calls the great high priest Jesus, the Son of God. These are words you ought to meditate on. You ought to think about the reality of what he's saying here. He intentionally places the phrase Jesus, the Son of God. And he places him at a seat in heaven. He clearly plainly describes this man Aaron and compares him to the great high priest and where he is seated. He is seated in heaven at the throne of God. There's a comparison happening here, setting forth what took place in a tabernacle which was temporary We don't go to that temple anymore. We don't go to a temple and sacrifice a new animal. Because our God is already seated in the heavens. Christ is called the Great High Priest. Why? Because of the deity of His person. He's called the Great High Priest because of the effectual nature of His sacrifice. His sacrifice actually saved, didn't make salvation possible. His sacrifice actually forgave sins, didn't atone for sin for just a year where you had to come back and repeat it over and over and over again. Imagine the vicious cycle of the Old Testament priest and the people. Imagine living through that year knowing all year long another atonement was going to have to be made because you kept on sinning and you kept on sinning and you kept on sinning and yet the great high priest at that time would go into the Holy of Holies after making atonement for his own sin And make another one. And then the next year would come and he would make another one. Jesus Christ is not repeating his sacrifice. He's not doing it over and over again. He has already effectually shown us the result of his sacrifice. Where is the place in which Jesus Christ as a great high priest occupies is in the throne of heaven. Back in Hebrews 9, verse 24, it tells us, For Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are the figures of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us, nor yet that he should offer himself often as the high priest entereth into the holy place every year with blood of others. For then must he often have suffered since the foundation of the world, but now once in the end of the world hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Now as beautiful as that is, here's the sobering reality. And as it is appointed unto men once to die. As it is appointed unto men once to die. Intentionally a third time. And as it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this, the judgment. So Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many unto them that look for Him shall He appear the second time without sin unto salvation. What am I occupying my time doing? What should I be occupying my time doing? Looking for His return. Not being distraught by everything that happens. Not being discouraged by everything and how the world keeps moving farther and farther away. Times keep growing darker. I'm looking to Christ, my Savior. And I'm looking for Him. My great high priest. He continues this picture of the priesthood. Says, tells us that since we have this high priest and since we have this certain hope of eternal life, he says, let us hold fast our profession. Let us hold fast our faith. This means continue to keep your confidence. Make use of the grace in which God gives us. Folks, you do realize, and I don't use this term a lot, and maybe I should, but you realize when we come together and we pray, we come together, we worship, we come together and we study and we fellowship, And by the words and the deeds, we show forth His praise. These are means of grace. We are actually living out what grace is, even when we gather to worship. The simple, to us, means of grace. You might remember back in Hebrews 3.6, the Bible told us there, but Christ is a son over his own house whose house we are if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm unto the end. I have a firm confidence in Christ today. It's not a hope it all works out thing. I hope I've got this right. My confidence in Christ is all in him. That's what kind of confidence we should have. We're to hold fast our inward confidence, make use of these means of grace that we have, prayer and worship and study. Never let this thought escape you about what Jesus Christ has done. Why do we make such a big deal about Christ? Because we are told, Paul told Timothy, put them in remembrance and don't let them forget it. I heard recently of another church, I don't know the name, I don't know the details, but they quote-unquote, dismiss their pastor because he preached too much on Christ. I would say that's not even a church. I don't know what it is. I don't know what they... They may have church on the sign. They may have church in their doctrinal statements. But the demand, don't preach too much about Christ. We're all saved people. We don't need to hear about Christ and His gospel. Oh, yes, you do. You need to hear about Christ and His gospel and what He's done for you every single day of your life. Because it's the only thing that's going to make a difference eternally. Is what think ye of Christ. Not what do you think about this church. There will always be people that don't like our church. There will always be people that say that's not for us. And folks, that's not what the concern of the hour is. Even if someone comes in the church and says, we don't like your church, I still leave them with this. But what do you think of Christ? You go where Christ wants you to be. You go where God wants you to be. But if Christ is not the very center of everything you're doing, you're you're failing yourselves eternally. You're failing yourself spiritually. The reality here of what the Hebrew author is writing us here is he wants us to understand that Jesus Christ as this great high priest there at the throne of grace in heaven. He executed part of his priesthood, certainly by dying here on earth for our sin. The other part of his priesthood, he is executing by pleading the cause and presenting the offerings of his people through his own blood. He continually, every, I won't use the term every day, but continually he is presenting his righteousness before the throne in order for you and I to have access Verse 15 of Hebrews 4. We'll go back to what he tells us. For we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Now it might seem repetitive, but notice again what he's saying. He's telling us that there might be a reason that we might not approach him. He makes mention of infirmities. He makes mention of things that we're going to deal with. He makes mention of the reality, don't allow these things to stop us from coming unto him because he adds on to this. He says, we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities was in all points tempted. Like, watch this, like as we are. This is a reference to what we talked about a few weeks ago about Christ as our brother. This is a beautiful expression. The the brotherhood of Christ is is an absolutely staggering thought to think about our unity with Him. He became like as we are in all points tempted, yet without sin. He is totally God and totally without sin. He's able, the writer says, to sympathize with His people. When Jesus Christ came to this earth, he was tempted and tried in every single point, in every single way as we are, yet he knew no sin. He knows your weaknesses. He knows your trials. He knows your pain. He knows your sorrow. He knows the temptation. Like we talked in our study, uh, the confession this morning. He knows the storms and the floods that are beating against your house at this very moment. He knows that struggle you're having with sin right now. in all points as we are, yet without sin. You know the one thing that high priest in the Old Testament tabernacle service couldn't possibly know, among a lot of other things, he couldn't know what every single person he was making atonement for was dealing with. He had a very small number of people where he could say, oh, I know what they're dealing with. I know what their weaknesses are. I know what their infirmities are. But as it registered in our mind that Jesus Christ knows what every one of his sheep is struggling with. It's, 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 it's one of those things I say. Sometimes as a pastor, I have no idea what you're struggling with. I have no idea what your journey is. I have no idea because you've never told me. But even if I knew them. There are things that I could not comfort and give to you like the great shepherd of your soul could do. When those when storms and those floods are beating against your house, folks, I'm not your first choice. You can come to me, I'm going to pray with you, but I'm going to point you to the shepherd who can sympathize with you because he knows exactly what you're dealing with. Someone can tell me I'm going through this and I can awkwardly say, well, I know what that's like. And I really don't. I've never endured that. Just as there are things I couldn't go to you and tell you I'm going through this, and you would say, Oh, I I, I understand. Do I really? No. But he does. He's a high priest that sympathizes with his people. He understands our temptation. This union with Christ brings not only His sympathy, but brings with it His divine support and deliverance. In the book of 1 John chapter 2, the very, very first verse of that book says, My little children, these things write I unto you, that ye sin not. And if any man sin, now we know there's not a matter of, of if, we know it's a matter of when, we have an advocate with the Father. Another word for advocate is an intercessor. Another word for intercessor is we have a great high priest with the Father Jesus Christ, the righteous. To be absolutely righteous means that he has to be perfect in character, absolutely free from sin, and absolutely innocent and perfectly just. We have an advocate. And he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And hereby we do know that we know him if we keep his commandments. He that saith, I know him and keepeth not his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoso keepeth his word in him, verily is the love of God perfected. Hereby know we that we are in him. He that saith he abideth in him ought himself also so to walk, even as he walked. What a beautiful picture. God sends his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. Remember what Paul wrote about in Romans chapter number 8, verse number 3, about this God, the Father, sending the Son in the likeness of flesh. One of the great, great phrases of all the Bible is Romans 8, 1. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh... God sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh but after the Spirit. For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the Spirit the things of the Spirit. God sends His own Son. Think about the impression Again, you'll have to understand where I'm coming from with this. Think about the impression of sin that Jesus Christ had. You know, we, are, we have all have impressions of what we think sin is, what we think is sinful. But you know, in the, in the mind of God and even in the mind of our Lord, sin was a complete abomination to God. Now I know that word's disappearing from our a modern language. It's an abomination. It's, it's unthinkable that we would look at something as sin and take it so lightly to simply say, well, that's just on the small scale of what sin really is. And we've done that for so many generations to where we've just slowly started moving it down to where we don't like terms like, you realize that sin is an abomination to God you realize that this is is not an offense against your spouse. It's not an offense against your children. This is an offense against God. I was teaching the fifth graders last week about Joseph and the temptation of Potiphar's wife and how here's this man, Joseph, who from the very beginning, he's hated by his brothers because his father Jacob loves him more. And he's given this coat of many colors and his brothers are raging against him and saying, why does this guy get all of dad's favor? And then Joseph does the unthinkable when he has a dream that's sent him directly by God and he, he tells his brothers when he wakes up, he says, you know what's gonna happen? And I'm paraphrasing this. He says, what's gonna happen, fellas? You're gonna wake, I'm, I woke up from this dream and I had this dream that one day you're all gonna bow to me. And I remember asking the kids, what would it be like if your brother woke up tomorrow and say, one day you're gonna bow to me? You'd respond the same way. You'd respond with this hatred of like, you're not gonna tell me what to do. Well, the story gets even better because Jacob asked Joseph the question, are you saying me, Jacob, your father, I'm going to bow to you too? Now, Joseph wasn't lying about any of this. He was telling the absolute truth. So his brothers decide, you know what, we're going to take care of Joseph. And they put this plan together about how they're going to throw him into a pit. They're going to make it look like he was attacked and killed by a wild animal. And all this, Joseph's doing nothing more than doing what he's supposed to do. He gets pulled out of the pit, he gets sold to the Ishmaelites, and the Israelites sell him to Egypt and he ends up in Egypt and he ends up in Potiphar's house. He's doing what he's supposed to be doing and suddenly Potiphar's wife comes and tempts him. Joseph does the right thing and he runs out of that, that coat and he says, how can I do this great sin against God? He gets falsely accused, he gets thrown in prison... He spends two years in prison for something he didn't do, right? He has a baker and a butler that are there. They're having dreams. He interprets their dreams. He tells one of them, you're going to be restored back to your position. He tells the other one in three days, he's going to hang you. He's going to kill you. Joseph asks the butler, remember me. Remember to tell Pharaoh I'm here. Pharaoh doesn't get the word. But later on, Pharaoh starts having dreams and Pharaoh has nobody to interpret them. And the butler says, hey, I remember a man named Joseph. That man, Joseph, can interpret dreams. Maybe he can help you. So he pulled Joseph out of the prison, brings him before Pharaoh. Pharaoh tells him the dream and he's having and He reminds him, he's, so there's seven, there are gonna be seven good years of, of plenty and seven years of famine. Suddenly Joseph now interprets a dream and Pharaoh makes him second in command. All these events are happening and everything looks like it's going against the very thing in which should be right. And later on the story, Joseph meets with his brothers. And of course, that whole event unfolds many different emotions and many different things. And he has the withal to look at them and say, men, what you meant for evil for me, God meant for good. He saw God's hand in the whole thing. He saw God's hand in how everything was happening. And yet, to be unconcerned about what Joseph did regarding that sin. Joseph could have gotten away with that sin. But Joseph didn't say, this is a sin against you. This is a sin against myself. This is a sin against God. Folks, that's how serious God takes sin. It is not something that is to be taken lightly. And when we see that the great high priest, Jesus Christ, who came in the likeness of sinful flesh, something that there's not even a spot of him, there's not a spot of sin in him, and he came in the likeness. And endured all the temptations, all that we would be tempted with, and yet he did it without sin. Jesus, of course, had an understanding of just how much of an abomination sin was to God. And then this final verse of Hebrews 4.16, it's the call. Let us, who, who are the us that's being mentioned here, it's all believers. This invitation to the throne of grace is not an invite for the whole world to come into the throne of grace. Folks, I'm going to say this very carefully. I'm going to say it very carefully, but very directly. You cannot invite someone who has not been given access to go to the throne of grace in a time of need if they do not have Jesus Christ as their Savior. People have often asked me the question, can an unbeliever pray for this? Can they pray for that? They cannot get access to the throne of grace unless they're coming through the merits and the righteousness of Jesus Christ. They say, well, I don't like what that sounds like. And my question is always this. If you don't believe in that God and you don't believe in Jesus Christ, then why do you need a throne of grace in the first place? Why do you need it? Now, if a person says, listen, I want to understand more about what it is to be a child of God. I want to understand more about what it is to uh, repent of my sins. Absolutely. You begin talking about the truths of who Christ is. Talk about the truths of what sin is. But don't run around this world telling people all the world has access to God in prayer. That's not scriptural, folks. Now, I don't say that arrogantly. I say that mournfully and sadly. Because we ought to, as Christian people, we ought to want the whole world to have access to this God. But we can't make up a way to get to the altar. We can't make up a way to get to the throne. Remember, Malachi was asking the question. God said, I've loved you. And the people said, how did you love us? How did God love you and I? How did God love us, his people? He died on a cross. Jesus Christ died on a cross and accomplished our salvation for unworthy, unrighteous sinners. And He did it all for the glory of God. Let us, all believers who love Christ and rest in His redemptive work, don't come before the throne of grace bringing something else to secure your redemption. Your redemption is secure in Christ alone. We're told to come boldly. To come boldly doesn't mean arrogantly, doesn't mean without reverence, but it means without a fear of being turned away because of our sins. If we're coming to the throne of grace by the righteousness of Christ, we will never be turned away from the throne of grace because of our sins. Nor will we ever be turned away and condemned. When Paul said in Romans 8, therefore, there is no more condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus, that's a finished deal, folks. Finished. There is no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus, there is no sin. That is going to condemn you if you are in Christ Jesus. Let us come boldly before the throne of grace. Why is it a throne of grace? Because Christ obeyed the law and died for our sins. The throne of judgment. Please don't miss this. The throne of judgment is now a throne of grace. That same grace we're receiving from the throne is going to be the same place in which the throne of judgment comes to those who are outside the body of Christ. That's why you're hearing the world say, we just want the God who's love. We just want to hear about God as love and how Jesus loves everybody. That's not the biblical God. And if we don't start taking God at His word and what God is and what He's cleared to be and take it more seriously, that's what's wrong with us is our view of God is skewed. God is not unmerciful even in judgment. Remember, none of us deserve mercy. None of us deserve it. It's because Christ obeyed the law. It's because Christ died for our sins that now this throne of judgment is now a throne of grace. The writer of Hebrews is telling us by saying, let us come boldly before the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. This is not the only time he uses that expression. We'll close with this. Hebrews 10, verse 19. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. Having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful that promised. And let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. For if we sin willfully after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins. But a certain fearful looking for for of judgment and fiery indignation which shall devour the adversaries. He that despised Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses. Of how much sore punishment, suppose ye, shall he be thought worthy who hath trodden under the foot, underfoot the Son of God, and hath counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing, and hath done despite under the Spirit of grace? That's a question. For we know him that hath said, Vengeance belongeth unto me, I will recompense, saith the Lord. And again, the Lord shall judge his his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But call to remembrance the former days in which after you were illuminated, you endured a great fight of afflictions. Partly while you were made a gazing stock, both by reproaches and afflictions, and partly while you became companions of them that were so used. For ye had compassion of me and my bonds, and took joyfully the spoiling of your goods, knowing in yourselves that you have in heaven, knowing that you have in heaven a better and an enduring substance. Cast not away, therefore, your confidence, which hath great recompense of reward, for ye have a need of patience, that after ye have done the will of God, ye might receive the promise. For yet a little while, and he that shall come will come, and will not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith, but if any man draw back, my soul have no pleasure in him. But we are not of them who draw back into perdition, but of them that believe to the saving of the soul. God has always declared salvation is in Christ and Christ alone. It's the only real happiness of the soul is what's found in Christ. Folks, what do we really want in our sin and our offenses to God is we want mercy and grace. We want God's mercy. We want God's grace. And yet we're told here as believers, those who are truly in Christ, we have boldness to enter in and to enter in only by the blood of Christ as our mediator. He has purchased his people. He has purchased his people. We can only truly rest in Christ. Folks, if you cannot rest and you cannot find peace and you cannot find eternal security, you're looking in the wrong person and you're looking in the wrong place and you're looking at the wrong thing because in Christ there's the perfect rest of God. Nothing else to bring, nothing else to add. My sufficiency is in Christ and his sacrifice. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the beauty of this passage. We thank you, Father, for the pictures and the illustrations that you've given to us. And by the Lord Jesus Christ coming in the likeness of sinful flesh. To the human mind, it's almost imaginable that he would even take on a likeness. Because we, as believers today, I prayerfully trust that we understand what sin really is. It's an abomination to you. And that there is no sin that is small. There is no sin that's to be taken lightly. And yet Jesus Christ, through his blood that was shed, provided the satisfaction of a holy, righteous God. Lord, we do pray for any that are here today who maybe are struggling in this area of even understanding what it is to be a child of God, what it is to be in the family of God. And Lord, how we pray as a body, we pray as a church, that if it be your will, that you would bring them to repentance and you would open their eyes and they would see and believe in Christ alone. Father, we trust you that only you can do the work only the Spirit can convert the soul. But, Father, may we be diligently, diligently praying for those that we know, praying that you will open their eyes. And, Lord, we pray that you will continue to guide us and direct us. And, Lord, we're thankful for the presence of God everywhere we go in the presence of the Spirit. Lord, thank you as we think about even this time of year, about God with us and God in the flesh. We thank you that the Lord Jesus Christ came to this earth to bleed and die in the place of his people. And may we rest in that truth today. And it's in Christ's name I pray and ask these things. Amen. If you would, let's stand.